It was once said that China is a sleeping giant that would shake the world if it was awoken. With economic growth in double figures for most of this decade, a solid banking system and trillions of dollars in foreign currency reserves, there can be no doubt that financially China is well and truly awake. But will the world's most populous nation weather the current global recession and come out of it as the new economic superpower? After travelling to Beijing with John Key, Chris Bramwell investigates the challenges facing China and asks what they could mean for New Zealand companies. Nowhere in China is the building boom more evident than in Shanghai, and the best example of that is here in the district of Pudong. In 1990, this area was farmland. Now it's home to some of the tallest buildings in Asia. And while the bubble may have burst, Shanghai is still rattling with jackhammers and the skyline is still dotted with cranes. Since the early 1990s, China's economy has grown at an incredible rate. Its gross domestic product often in double figures. And while the world has slid into recession, China's economy has continued to grow, but at a much slower rate. The Beijing correspondent for the Financial Times, Jamil Andalini, says the global economic slowdown has hit China in two ways. At home you had a slowing in the property market, which was kind of induced by the Chinese government itself, who were worried about overheating in the property market. But then you also had, at the same time, an external shock. You had the financial crisis in the US and, and spreading to the rest of the world. And that caused these economies to to slow and to go into recession. And then they stopped buying or started buying much less Chinese goods. So China got hit by by kind of a perfect storm. They had the uh, internal beginnings of the end of a property bubble, a bursting of a property bubble. And they also had the slowdown in exports. Jamil Andalini says China is unique in that its banking sector and financial systems are very solid, as they were recapitalised during the Asian financial crisis at the end of the 1990s. He concedes that even though China's economic growth is slowing, it's still growth, in marked contrast to many other major economies. If you think about you go from 13% down to 9%, that can feel like a recession, right? I think then you go from 9% down to maybe 6%. Uh, The official target for this year is 8% GDP growth. I mean, amazing by anyone's standards. But actually, in private, most government officials don't think that they're, you know, even government officials don't think they're going to hit that level. And certainly the World Bank is forecasting 6.5% growth. So, not exactly recession, but how is that sudden slowdown in the economy likely to affect China? And with such a large and diverse country, will all parts be hit in the same way? Xiaoming Huang is a professor of international relations at Victoria University and the director of the New Zealand Contemporary China Research Centre. He says the impact of the recession on people living in China will be slightly different to other countries. You have some parts of China, especially the coastal area, which actually more or less invest from outside, export towards outside. And that part of the economy actually quite strong influence affected by the recession. And I think particularly in Guangdong, southern east coastal area, a lot of factories actually closed down because of that. But for other parts, the economy are not really directly depends on the orders from outside. You don't see much of that immediate effect. Uh, Maybe the the housing prices may affect them a little bit. So a lot of uh, hedging, you know, playing by different market players. 
But I think the general population, the issue is really if they come to the point that there is, there will be a problem affecting their job, then they become a real issue. Millions of workers flood into Shanghai to find work. They're often housed on the building site in areas like the one I'm in now. The prefab blocks are like stacks of containers, each with a square foot sized window. Since the early 1990s, China's building boom has been supported by rural people coming to the cities to work and sending money back to their villages. But Jamil Andalini says there's been a serious reduction in the flow of workers from rural areas into the cities. Well, you've seen huge numbers of people getting laid off. I mean, it's very hard to, to quantify it, but some official numbers say as many as 23 million migrant workers who have moved in the last over the last decade have moved from the countryside to the cities to work in the factories making t-shirts and toys and furniture for exports to the west. These people have lost their jobs and gone back to the countryside. So it's quite important that it's not just, they haven't just lost their jobs, they've actually lost their jobs and given up hope of getting another one and gone back to the farm. And that is um, a real concern for the, for the government because you have a situation with you know, millions and millions, the size of you know, population of Australia who have lost their jobs and are a bit annoyed and don't really want to go back to the farm. Maybe their land has been uh, redistributed to someone else or they, you know, they, they don't have any work to go back to and, and they're going to be disgruntled and annoyed. And the potential for widespread unrest is, is there and, and that's recognised by, by Beijing, by the, by the official, you know, by the governments. The Chinese leadership is very worried about increasing social unrest as a result of the rising unemployment. Jamil Andalini believes there are now fears the pressure could result in calls for more fundamental changes to how China is run. The government itself is very worried about a slowing in economic growth leading to more calls for political reforms, for, for more representative government, which could spill over into something like we saw 20 years ago the Tiananmen Square protests, uh, which led to the massacre on June 4th and in, in, in around Tiananmen Square. So, you know, we, we've come 20 years since then, and in that 20 years, the Chinese government has basically had a, an unwritten contract with its populate, you know, with its citizens, which is that you leave the political stuff to us, you forget about politics, and you, you don't ask for more democracy, and we'll get, make you get rich. We'll let you get rich, and, and we'll sort of remove ourselves from, from the business world and we'll allow you to, to go ahead and, and make money. But the problem is when that contract starts to break down, if the economy starts to, to really slow, slow right down and people don't see their lives, don't see themselves getting richer and don't see a bright future, then the calls for a more representative form of government are going to only increase, right? And so this is what the government is very worried about. And, and so they're bringing in all sorts of policies to try and uh, make sure that growth doesn't slow that much. Those policies include one of the biggest stimulus packages of any nation, which was announced in November last year, about 4 trillion Chinese yuan, or trillion New Zealand dollars. That's being funded by central and local governments, but also by bank lending. On a recent trip to China, New Zealand's Prime Minister John Key was briefed on the country's economic situation firsthand. He says China's banks have been lending at a phenomenal rate in the first quarter. 
they have self-imposed limits on you know the growth of credit from their banking institutions because they're worried if they grow too quickly that the quality of credit growth will be poor. And I think I think off the top of my head, the number I read in papers five, I think it must be five trillion one, and they I think they've lent four and a half trillion in the first quarter. So there's certainly their credit growth is very strong, which I think they take as a sign that investments and confidence is returning. The Chinese Premier, Wan Jiabao, hosts a ceremonial welcome to the Great Hall of the People for John Key. I think there does not exist any conflict of fundamental interest between our two countries, and our two peoples have friendly sentiments towards each other. I believe your visit to China this time will give a strong boost to our bilateral ties. Premier Wen, can I firstly、uh, thank you for the invitation to be here in Beijing and in China, and it's been a, a fabulous opportunity for me and my delegation. It's、uh, no coincidence that the first visit that I've made on a bilateral basis outside of our visit to Australia has been to China, and that is a, a sign of the significance of the relationship that I believe that we have and will have in the years to come. Much of John Key's meetings with both Premier Wen and President Hu Jintao was taken up with trade matters, in particular the dairy trade. Inevitably, the conversation touched on the part Fonterra-owned Sanlu Dairy Company and the contaminated milk controversy. I indicated a strong desire for Fonterra to play an active role in the development of the dairy industry and the agricultural industry here in China.、Uh, Premier Wen said that. As far as they were concerned, they saw Sandlu as, as a single isolated incident, and that was behind us now.、Um, Last year, six babies in China died, and more than 300,000 children were made ill by contaminated milk sold by the Chinese dairy company Sandlu. The industrial chemical melamine had been added to milk so that it tested as having a higher protein content. Two people were sentenced to death, and the chair of the now defunct Sandlu was sentenced to life imprisonment. New Zealand's Fonterra Dairy Cooperative owned a 43% stake in the company. The scandal knocked local confidence in domestic milk products, which had the perverse effect of boosting Fonterra's exports to China, as Chinese consumers looked to products they felt they could trust. Fonterra's chairman Henry Vanderhaeden was part of the Prime Minister's delegation to China. It was his first visit to China since the scandal broke. I spoke to him in Beijing about the impact of the Sanlu scandal on Fonterra. You know, this is a a sad set of events. It's been tragic.、Um, a lot of people have anguished over it, and I think that's been said many times. It's actually well understood. I have been absolutely delighted just how welcome I've actually been everywhere. Premier Wen said that Chinese farmers are having a hard time because of that domestic pull away from the domestic product. The consumers, you know, looking more to the international products. Do you do you think there could be any resentment from Chinese farmers to Fonterra's operations here? Yeah, look, I get asked that question all the time. But you know, if you take a global perspective、um, today, farmers around the world are hurting everywhere. You know, if you take Europe, you take the US,、um, here in China, you know, even farmers in New Zealand, you know, the cash flows are very, very. 
tight. So it's not only happening here, it's, ha- it's actually happening everywhere else. But in the that's world. as a result of the recession. That's more, the, the situation here in China is more as a result of the, the San Lu incident. Um, I'm not sure whether that's correct. You know, you know this is about, um, you know, there are economic hard times here happening in China also. So I think the economic situation globally um, is having impact on the milk price everywhere around the world. During his meetings with the Chinese leadership, the Prime Minister John Key sat Henry van der Hayden at the front table with him. The gesture was a symbolic one, as Mr Key explains. Well, it's certainly an acknowledgement that it's both in New Zealand's interest and our strong desire for Fonterra to be able to play a, a major role in the agricultural sector in China. You know, while, you know, it's with great regret that the incident at San Lu occurred, um, New Zealand's worked hard to put that incident behind us. I think Fonterra's worked hard domestically to try and um, put that incident behind them. And um, I thought it was a very important symbolic step that we had Henry van der Hayden at the table. Fonterra's Managing Director for China, Philip Turner, says despite the bankruptcy of San Lu, Fonterra still has a substantial, growing and profitable business in China. The bulk of that right now is imported uh, ingredients products, pretty well all from New Zealand. Um, Then in addition to that, we've got a very healthy and fast-growing food service business, which is providing cheese and butter and cream to hotels and fast food chains and so on. Eight out of every ten pizzas sold in China carry Fonterra New Zealand cheese on them. Something like eight out of ten packets of little butter, like you see in the hotels and the aircraft, that's all Fonterra New Zealand butter. We have a very small brands business around the Anlene and Anmum brands, which were previously dealt with through San Luis, so we're having to restructure that business. And then, of course, we have the farm. Fonterra's farm is its first outside New Zealand and is quite a different operation from those back home. In China, the cows are housed in vast barns and grain-fed. Philip Turner says the whole industry is in the process of transforming from small farms to large industrial farms. He admits working in the Chinese market is challenging. You've only got to look at the last year to realise quite how difficult it can be and you know, what can go wrong. We are under no illusions about the difficulties, but equally it's such a big and important market to New Zealand and to Fonterra that we simply can't afford to ignore it. It's the fastest growing dairy market in the world. It's buying a very large amount of product directly from New Zealand today. But we know that in the future most of the growth in China is going to be behind the border. Most dairy products in China are going to be made and procured from Chinese milk. So if we want to share in that growth and we want to go with our customers' growth and and meet their demands, we are going to have to be present in China developing our own quality milk supply and balancing our imported business from New Zealand. And Philip Turner says Fonterra plans to take things slowly for a while. The industry itself is in some disarray. because of melamine, but also because of the economic downturn. Dairy demand in China is down overall, and asset values across the industry are under, under pressure. We've got our own capital constraints. So there's no need to go rushing into things, and we're not going to. We are going to take our time, look carefully, but in the medium to, to longer term, we are absolutely committed to building a substantial business here. Uh, what exactly that's going to look like, I don't know today, uh, but watch this space. It's going to be very interesting. Beijing-based trade consultant Henry Ackland says as export demand drops off and China tries to boost domestic consumption, opportunities for New Zealand businesses will open up. He says this applies particularly in the areas of food safety as the dairy scare has led to a general distrust by Chinese consumers of their own food. I think there's throughout, I just don't think 
the Chinese people have absolute confidence in the food that's made in China. That's the understanding I've got from talking with Chinese people. There's a lack of confidence there. Do you think that that then bodes well for New Zealand food exporters? Possibly in the short term, at least, as can be seen from getting our dairy products in here, certainly. Do you think, though, even though you say it's short term, that it would be a way into the market to get a toehold and then expand from there? But if you look at Fonterra, that's what it tried to do with San Lu. It had a partnership, a 43% partnership with San Lu, and that didn't work out. So there's all kinds of risks there. The difficulty with doing trade with China or trying to get a foothold is all these unseen problems. Law in China is very difficult in terms of it's one thing to get an outcome in the courts and then to get enforcement is difficult also. So how do you go about if something goes wrong in China, how do you fix that? You know, what, How do you stay risk adverse? And then, of course, the best thing to do is go in with a Chinese partner because that Chinese partner has all the connections with the local government officials. But then what happens if that Chinese partner isn't a good partner? Well, you, you saw what happened with Fonterra. You can't do a lot. And if you're going into China without a Chinese partner, you really have to work with Chinese officials. If something goes wrong, you want to, be, to have some good advice uh, coming from government, basically. That all sounds like a bit of a minefield, really. Do you think a lot of New Zealand businesses might be a bit too scared to come and try and do business in China, or do you think it's getting easier? I don't know how much easier it is getting. I think, yes, I agree with you. A lot of New Zealand businesses, when they really start thinking about doing business in China, might be turned off. But then I, I know of an exporter, a honey exporter, to China in New Zealand, and he's just started recently exporting. And the Chinese woman who's helping him out, she's lived in New Zealand for a number of years. She knows the, the Kiwi way, but she's got her contacts in China. And I think he's been only exporting for one year, and last year he exported $200,000 worth of honey, which isn't a bad start considering it's, it's the first year. So he's very happy. Wool was one of the first products to break into the Chinese market on any scale back in the mid-1960s. The managing director of wool exporting company Seaguard Masserell, Peter Whiteman, says while relationships in the sector are well established, they have changed in line with changes in the Chinese regime. We used to deal with government department, government uh, buying organisations. Now they're pretty much all owner-operated, and so uh, the direct line of sight's good now. It used to be quite frustrating. You didn't know who your real customers were in the end. Now now we have a very good understanding, good relationship with them. So it's improved dramatically rather than having that sort of clandestine approach to everything. So it's easier doing business there now? I, w- I would say it was easier with the government departments. They paid every time. They paid on time. They did everything they said. Now we, we have the nuances of business and different styles of business that we have to cope with, but it's the only way forward to have to know your customers and know how things operate. So we're, we're happier now, but it was easier then, if you like. So within that different framework, are relationships more important yeah. now? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Mm. We, you need that relationship. We used to just be at the complete behest of when the central party issued some funds to uh, the buying organisations. Now we're selling to people who buy when they need the wool. They're buying the right wool now. And uh, so, yeah, the, the, it's a true, proper business relationship. 
The chair of the New Zealand-China Trade Association, Stuart Ferguson, says it's really relationships that are crucial for doing business successfully with China. New Zealand and China signed a free trade agreement last year, the first such deal that China has signed with a developed nation. Mr Ferguson says for the last 25 years, he's been in no doubt that New Zealand has a special relationship with China. We're no threat to them. We are an easy market in which to test theories for their own evolution of of international exposure. And they like the way we do business. They like the way that Australia does does business as well. And Australia throws many, many more dollars at their own export relationship with China because they've got more dollars. But for what New Zealand has to spend in terms of encouraging that trade relationship and in terms of the political will to bring it to bear, which has been shown in the FTA that's, that's now currently in force, I believe that New Zealand has a very, very strong and a very, very positive future with China. Stuart Ferguson is also the director of the New Zealand arm of the global shipping company Costco. He says when it became clear that the recession was starting to bite, there were concerns in his business that New Zealand would be at the bottom of the food chain. I counselled them with the thought that New Zealand produces raw materials, commodities, basic foodstuffs, nothing really fancy, nothing luxurious. It is all basic raw material, basic commodity needs that people will buy no matter what. The only codicil I placed on that was the ability of the countries to process and provide funding to purchase it. Now, what we have seen since February, certainly, is a major lift in food exports to uh, North Asia, which you can read to be China in, in main part. And that projection that I made back in October, I think, is coming to pass. Certainly, the dairy industry is preparing and in the middle of a very large balloon of delayed exports to China. The Chinese marketplace itself in respect of dairy industry products is saying we don't trust our own people because they've put horrible poisonous things in our products and maimed and and killed a lot of our children. So therefore we want to buy from where we know there is a good strong product health and safety record, Ergo New Zealand. And we are seeing that most definitively. 乘客们请注意,北京直达奥克兰航线于7月19日起飞,请致电北京各大票务中心或登录3w.airnewzealand.cn。Air New Zealand is looking to China as one of its emerging markets. Its North Asia regional manager, Charles Phelps Penry, explains the company's strategy. We see China growing to be within, say, the next five years, potentially to the, the second largest market of overseas visitors for New Zealand. And similarly for us too. So you don't have any concerns about the recession and the slowing of economic growth here in China and perhaps the middle class which are the ones that are likely to do the travelling pulling back somewhat? I don't think so. When you look at the economy at the moment uh, China's not been affected quite as badly by the credit crunch as other countries. There have been other factors that have certainly slowed demand over the last 12 months the earthquake probably being the biggest one, and the Olympics, uh, curiously, had had a a big damper on travel. But the economy is is generally in in actually fairly good shape. China wasn't as exposed to the American subprime crisis, and the banks here, therefore, are in fairly good shape. Bank lending is up 20% at the moment, which not many countries can say. So the middle class has definitely scaled back expenditure a little bit, but we're seeing uh, the economic indicators moving in a positive direction and I think second half of the year we're going to see confidence return a little bit and we we certainly believe that by the end of the year we're going to see travel on the up.
But not all New Zealand exporters are seeing a positive future. The recession has hit wood processors and their trade with China. The chief executive of the Wood Processors Association, Peter Bodecker, says late last year the industry noticed a big drop-off in pulp exports. It probably stemmed from the fact that the American economy slowed down and much of the pulp that we sell into China ends up as packaging for product that gets exported out of China again. So we're providing packaging material for the Chinese exporter and that slowed down because the rest of the world's economy slowed down. So we saw a big drop. Over Christmas we were fearing the worst but our mills were full. We had plenty of work the price was lower but ever since the you know we've just maintained a steady flow of of exports in terms of our pulp mills they really haven't slowed down significantly although the price is lower than what we were expecting wood pulp is one of the few sectors that is seeing a reduction in exports but peter bodecker is hopeful that the situation will improve as chinese domestic consumption picks up Unfortunately for his industry, the much-heralded free trade agreement doesn't make any difference as pulp already enters China duty-free. While the deal was signed more than a year ago, the first sectors only came into the agreement in October. The removal of tariffs under the agreement is staggered over a number of years, and so far it only affects products that have tariffs of less than 5%, which includes scrap metal, fish meal, fibreboard and wool. Peter Whiteman says wool exports to China are quite stable in an environment where global exports of wool have fallen, so China's share is actually growing. Traditionally, a lot of our wool has been sold into the domestic market, uh, as opposed to a lot of the Australian wool is processed there into apparel and re-exported to Europe and the States for, for suiting and the like, whereas a lot of the New Zealand wool, which is coarser, tends to go to the local people, a lot to rural people for hand knitting and machine knitting. And as their population's rather stable and they've had reasonably good growth there, the, the, their requirements are, are more, more than stable, should I say, so it's quite positive. Another sector which is also doing well under the current economic squeeze is education. The Chief Executive of Education New Zealand, Robert Stevens, says earlier in the decade there was a fall-off in international student numbers due to increased international competition and the strength of the New Zealand dollar. He says in the past few years there's been steady growth out of China, with student numbers up 6% this year. And overall there are 17% more students coming into New Zealand. The institutions that I've been talking to are attributing that largely to the to the lower Kiwi dollar. But also there is still a group of parents out there around the world that are wanting and needing to send their children abroad for education. As the economy tightens around the world, New Zealand has to look a better option than, say, sending your children to the UK or to the United States or wherever. So will the recession change forever the way China trades with the rest of the world, including New Zealand? China's recent calls to move away from the US dollar as the international reserve currency and an agreement with Brazil to trade in their own currencies bypassing the US dollar indicate that it's positioning itself to become a major player on the world economic stage. Academics warn China should be careful not to throw its weight around in the new financial environment, but tread a more cautious line. Whatever the approach, it's clear that with or without the recession, and regardless of other economies, China will continue to grow, and New Zealand needs to ensure that it's part of that growth.
That programme was written and presented by Chris Bramwell. It was produced by Philippa Tolley with technical production by Colette Chapman.